18. Position of Cato, who declared that Caesar ought to be delivered up to the Usipus and Tench theory, to atone for his treachery in seizing the sacred persons of ambassadors. Fifth Campaign, B.C. 54. The greater part of Caesar's fifth campaign was occupied with his second invasion of Britain. He sailed from the Port Aishis with an army of five legions, and landed, without opposition, at the same place as in the former year. The British states had entrusted the supreme command to Pisivalanus, a chief whose territories were divided from the maritime states by the river Thames-sized Thames. The Britons bravely opposed the progress of the invaders, but were defeated in a series of engagements. Caesar crossed the Thames above London, probably in the neighborhood of Kingston, took the town of Cassivellaunus, and conquered great part of the counties of Essex and Middlesex. In consequence of these disasters, Cassivellaunus sued for peace, and after demanding hostages, and settling the tribute which Britain should pay yearly to the Roman people, Caesar returned to Gaul toward the latter part of the summer. He gained no more by his second invasion of Britain than by his first. He had penetrated, it is true, farther into the country, but had left no garrisons or military establishments behind him, and the people obeyed the Romans as little afterward as they had done before. In consequence of the great scarcity of corn in Gaul, Caesar was obliged to divide his forces, and station his legions for the winter in different parts. This seemed to the Gauls a favorable opportunity for recovering their lost independence and destroying their conquerors. The Eberones, a Gallic people between the Meuse and the Rhine, near the modern Tongers, destroyed the detachment under the command of Titaturis Sabinus and El Oruncules They next attacked the camp of Q. Cicero, the brother of the orator, who was stationed among the Nervae. Cicero repulsed the enemy in all their attempts, till he was at length relieved by Caesar in person, who came to his assistance with two legions as soon as he heard of the dangerous position of his legate. The forces of the enemy, which amounted to 60.000, were defeated by Caesar who then joined Cicero, and praised him and his men for the bravery they had shown. Sixth Campaign, B.C. 63. In the next year the Gauls again took up arms, and entered into a most formidable conspiracy to recover their independence. The destruction of the Roman troops under Sabinus and Cotus, and the unsettled state of Gaul during the winter, had led Caesar to apprehend a general rising of the natives, and he had accordingly levied two new legions in Cisalpine Gaul, and obtained one from Pompey who was remaining in the neighborhood of Rome as proconsul with the Imperium. Being thus at the head of a powerful army, he was able to subdue the tribes that revolted, and soon compelled the Nervae, Sinones, Carnutes, Menapii, and Trevirae to return to obedience. But as the Trevirae had been supported by the Germans, he crossed the Rhine again a little above the spot where he had passed over two years before, and, after receiving the submission of the Ubi, ravaged the country of the Suevi. On his return to Gaul he laid waste the country of the Eberones with fire and sword. At the conclusion of the campaign he prosecuted a strict inquiry into the revolt of the Sinones and Karates, and caused Otko, who had been the chief ringleader in the conspiracy, to be put to death. Seventh Campaign, B.C. 52. The unsuccessful issue of last year's revolt had not yet damped the spirits of the Gauls. The execution of Otko had frightened all the chiefs. As everyone feared that his turn might come next, the hatred of the Roman yoke was intense, and thus all the materials were ready for a general conflagration. It was first kindled by the Carnutes, and in a short time it spread from district to district till almost the whole of Gaul was in flames. Even the Edui, who had been hitherto the faithful allies of the Romans, and had assisted them in all their wars, 
subsequently joined the general revolt. At the head of the insurrection was Vertindrix, a young man of noble family belonging to the Arverni, and by far the ablest general that Caesar had yet encountered. Never before had the Gauls been so united, Caesar's conquests of the last six years seemed to be now entirely lost. The campaign of this year, therefore, was by far the most arduous that Caesar had yet carried on, but his genius triumphed over every obstacle, and rendered it the most brilliant of all. He concentrated his forces with incredible rapidity, and lost no time in attacking the chief towns in the hands of the enemy. Velano Dunham in the country of Chateau-Land, Genebum Orléans, and Noyo Dunham Nuan, between Orléans and Borges, fell into his hands without difficulty. Alarmed at his rapid progress, Vertindrix persuaded his countrymen to lay waste their country and destroy their towns. This plan was accordingly carried into effect, but, contrary to the wishes of Vertindrix, Evaricum Borges, the chief town of the Baitorages, and a strongly fortified place, was spared from the general destruction. This town Caesar accordingly besieged, and, notwithstanding the heroic resistance of the Gauls, it was at length taken, and all the inhabitants, men, women, and children, were indiscriminately butchered. Caesar now divided his army into two parts, one division, consisting of four legions, he sent, under the command of two Labianus, against the Sinones and Parisii, the other, comprising six legions, he led in person into the country of the Arverni, and with them laid siege to Jagovia near Clermont. The revolt of the Edui shortly afterward compelled him to raise the siege, and inspired the Gauls with fresh courage. Vertindrix retired to Algelives, in Burgundy, which was considered impregnable, and resolved to await for succors from his countrymen. Caesar immediately laid siege to the place, and drew lines of circumvallation around it. The Romans, however, were in their turn soon surrounded by a vast Gallic army which had assembled to raise the siege. Caesar's army was thus placed in imminent peril, and on no occasion in his whole life was his military genius so conspicuous. He was between two great armies. Vertindrix had 70.000 men in Asia, and the Gallic army without consisted of between 250.000 and 300.000 men. Still he would not raise the siege. He prevented Vertindrix from breaking through the lines, entirely rooted the Gallic army without, and finally compelled Asia to surrender. Vertindrix himself fell into his hands. The fall of Asia was followed by the submission of the Edui and Arvmai. Caesar then led his troops into a winter quarters. After receiving his dispatches, the Senate voted him a public thanksgiving of twenty days, as in the year B.C. 55, 8th campaign, B.C. 51. The victories of the preceding year had determined the fate of Gaul, but many states still remained in arms, and entered into fresh conspiracies during the winter. This year was occupied in the reduction of these states into the particulars of which we need not enter. During the winter Caesar employed himself in the pacification of Gaul, and, as he already saw that his presence would soon be necessary in Italy, he was anxious to remove all causes for future wars. He accordingly imposed no new taxes, treated the states with honor and respect, and bestowed great presents upon the chiefs. The experience of the last two years had taught the Gauls that they had no hope of contending successfully against Caesar, and, as he now treated them with mildness, they were the more readily induced to submit patiently to the Roman yoke. Chapter XXXID Internal History From the return of Cicero from banishment to the commencement of the Civil War Expedition and Death of Cereus Essius B.C. 5750 
Cicero returned from banishment and altered man, though his return had been glorious, he saw that his position was entirely changed, and he was forced to yield to a power which he no longer dared to resist, he even lent his support to the triumvirs, and praised in public those proceedings which he had once openly and loudly condemned, meantime the power of Pompey had been shaken at Rome, a misunderstanding had sprung up between him and Crossus and Cato and the other leaders of the aristocracy attacked him with the utmost vehemence. The Senate began to entertain hopes of recovering their power. They determined to support Aldomedes Ahindobarbus, who, in B.C. 56, had become a candidate for the consulship for the following year, and who threatened to deprive Caesar of his provinces and armies. Under these circumstances Caesar invited Pompey and Crossus to meet him at Luca Luca in the spring of B.C. 56. He reconciled them to each other, and arranged that they were to be consuls for the next year, and obtain provinces and armies, while he himself was to have his government prolonged for another five years, and to receive pay for his troops. On their return to Rome, Pompey and Crossus became candidates for the consulship, but Domedes Ahindobarbus, supported by Cato and the aristocracy, offered a most determined opposition. The consul Lentulus Marcellinus likewise was resolved to use every means to prevent their election, and, finding it impossible to carry their election while Marcellinus was in office, they availed themselves of the veto of two of the tribunes to prevent the consular commissia from being held this year. The elections, therefore, did not take place till the beginning of B.C. 55, under the presidency of an interrex. Even then Ahindobarbus and Cato did not relax in their opposition and it was not till the armed bands of Pompey and Crossus had cleared the campus martis of their adversaries that they were declared consuls for the second time B.C. 55. They forthwith proceeded to carry into effect the compact that had been made at Lucca. They induced the Tribune C. Tribonis to bring forward two bills, one of which gave the province of the two Spains to Pompey, and that of Syria to Crossus, the other prolonged Caesar's government for five years more, namely, from the 1st of January. B.C. 53, to the end of the year 49, Pompey was now at the head of the state, and at the expiration of his year of office would no longer be a private man, but with the command of an army and in possession of the Imperium, with an army he felt sure of regaining his former influence, he had now completed the theater which he had been some time building, and, as a means of regaining the popular favor, he resolved to open it with an exhibition of games of unparalleled splendor and magnificence. The building itself was worthy of the conqueror of the East. It was the first stone theater that had been erected at Rome, and was sufficiently large to accommodate 40.000 spectators. The games exhibited lasted many days. 500 African lions and 18 elephants were killed. A rhinoceros was likewise exhibited on this occasion for the first time. Pompey sent an army into Spain under the command of his lieutenants, Elephrenes and Ampetreus while he himself remained in the neighborhood of Rome as proconsul. Before the end of the year Crossus set out for Syria, with the intention of attacking the Parthians. He was anxious to distinguish himself in war, like Pompey and Caesar, and, though upward of sixty years of age, he chose rather to enter upon an undertaking for which he had no genius than to continue the pursuit of wealth and influence at home. He crossed the Euphrates in B.C. 54 hesitating to proceed at once against Parthia, he gave the enemy time to assemble his forces, and returned to Syria without accomplishing anything of importance, he spent the winter in Syria, where, instead of exercising his troops and preparing for the ensuing campaign, he plundered the temples, 
and employed his time in collecting money from every quarter. In the following spring B.C. 53 he again crossed the Euphrates, and plunged into the sandy deserts of Mesopotamia. He trusted to the guidance of an Arabian chieftain, who promised to lead him by the shortest way to the enemy, but this man was in the pale Shiranas, the Parthian general, and when he had brought the Romans into the open plains of Mesopotamia, he seized a frivolous pretext, and rode off to inform Shiranas that the Roman army was delivered into his hands. The Parthians soon appeared. They worried the densely marshaled Romans with showers of arrows, and by feigned retreats, during which they continued to discharge their arrows, they led the Romans into disadvantageous positions. The son of Crossus, who had distinguished himself as one of Caesar's lieutenants in Gaul, was slain, and the Romans, after suffering great loss, retreated to Cari, the Haran of Scripture. On the following day they continued their retreat, and Shiranas, fearing that Crossus might after all make his escape, invited him to an interview. He was treacherously seized, and, in the scuffle which ensued, was slain by some unknown hand. His head was carried to the Parthian king Rhodes, who caused melted gold to be poured into the mouth, saying, Saw me thyself now with that metal of which in life thou wert so greedy. Twenty thousand Roman troops were slain, and ten thousand taken prisoners. In this expedition, one of the most disastrous in which the Romans were ever engaged, only a small portion of the Roman army escaped to Syria under the command of Alcasius Longinus, afterward one of Caesar's assassins, who had displayed considerable ability during the war, but whose advice Crossus had constantly refused to follow. The death of Crossus left Pompey and Caesar alone at the head of the state, and it became evident that sooner or later a struggle would take place between them for the supremacy. The death of Julia, in B.C. 54, to whom both her father and husband were strongly attached, broke a link which might have united them much longer. Pompey considered that he had been the chief means of raising Caesar to power, and he appeared long to have deemed it impossible that the conqueror of Mithridates could be thrown into the shade by any popular leader. Such a result, however, was now imminent. Caesar's brilliant victories in Gaul were in everybody's mouth and Pompey saw with ill-disguised mortification that he was becoming the second person in the state. Though this did not lead him to break with Caesar at once, it made him anxious to increase his power and influence, and he therefore now resolved, if possible, to obtain the dictatorship. He accordingly used no effort to put an end to the disturbances at Rome between Milo and Clodius in this year, in hopes that all parties would be willing to accede to his wishes in order to restore peace to the city. Milo was a candidate for the consulship and Clodius for the praetorship. Each was attended by a band of hired ruffians. Battles took place between them daily in the forum and the streets. All order and government were at an end. In such a state of things no elections could be held, and the confusion at length became downright anarchy. When Milo murdered Clodius on the 20th of January in the following year BC 52, the two rivals had met near Bodily, accompanied, as usual, by their armed followers. A fray ensued, the party of Milo proved the stronger, and Clodius took refuge in a house, but Milo attacked the house, dragged out Clodius, and having dispatched him, left him dead upon the road, his body was found by a senator, carried to Rome, and exposed naked to the people, they were violently excited at the sight, and their feelings were still farther inflamed by the harangues of the tribunes, the benches and tables of the senate house were seized to make a funeral pile for their favorite, and not only the Senate House, but several other public buildings, were reduced to ashes, as the riots still continued, the Senate had no longer any choice but to call in the assistance of Pompey, 
They therefore commissioned him to collect troops and put an end to the disturbances. Pompey, who had obtained the great object of his desires, obeyed with alacrity. He was invested with the supreme power of the state by being elected sole consul on the 25th of February, and, in order to deliver the city from Milo and his myrmidons, he brought forward laws against violence and bribery at elections. Milo was put upon his trial, the court was surrounded with soldiers, Cicero, who defended him, was intimidated, and Milo was condemned, and went into exile at Massilia. Others shared the same fate, and peace was once more restored to the state. Pompey's jealousy of Caesar brought him into connection with the aristocratical party. After Julia's death he had married Cornelia, the daughter of Metellus Scipio, whom he made his colleague on the 1st of August. His next step was to strike a blow at Caesar. He brought forward an old law that no one should become a candidate for a public office while absent, in order that Caesar might be obliged to resign his command, and to place himself in the power of his enemies at Rome if he wished to obtain the consulship a second time. But the renewal of this enactment was so manifestly aimed at Caesar that his friends insisted he should be specially exempted from it, and as Pompey was not yet prepared to break openly with him, he thought it more expedient to yield. At the same time, Pompey provided that he himself should remain in command of an army after his rival had ceased to have one, by obtaining a senatus consultum, by which his government of the Spains was prolonged for another five years, and, in case Caesar should obtain the consulship, he caused a law to be enacted, in virtue of which no one could have a province till five years had elapsed from the time of his holding a public office. Such were the precautions adopted against Caesar, the uselessness of which time soon showed. In the following year B.C. 51 Pompey declared himself still more openly on the side of the Senate, but still he shrank from supporting all the violent measures of the consul M. Claudius Marcellus, who proposed to send a successor to Caesar on the plea that the war in Gaul was finished, and to deprive him of the privilege of becoming a candidate for the consulship in his absence. The consuls for the next year B.C. 50, Elinilis Pons and C. Claudius Marcellus, and the powerful tribune C. Curio, were all reckoned devoted partisans of Pompey and the Senate. Caesar, however, gained over Pons and Curio by large bribes, and with a lavish hand distributed immense sums of money among the leading men of Rome. It was proposed in the Senate by the Consul C. Marcellus that Caesar should lay down his command by the 13th of November, but this was an unreasonable demand, Caesar's government had upward of another year to run, and if he had come to Rome as a private man to sue for the consulship, there can be no doubt that his life would have been sacrificed. Cato had declared that he would bring Caesar to trial as soon as he laid down his command, but the trial would have been only a mockery for Pompey was in the neighborhood of the city at the head of an army, and would have overawed the judges by his soldiery as at Milo's trial. The tribune Curio consequently interposed his veto upon the proposition of Marcellus. The Senate, anxious to diminish the number of his troops, had, under pretext of a war with the Parthians, ordered that Pompey and Caesar should each furnish a legion to be sent into the east. The legion which Pompey intended to devote to this service was one he had lent to Caesar in B.C. 53 and which he now accordingly demanded back, and, although Caesar saw that he should thus be deprived of two legions, which would probably be employed against himself, he complied with the request. Upon their arrival in Italy, they were not sent to the east, but were ordered to pass the winter at Capua. Caesar took up his quarters at Ravenna, the last town in his province bordering upon Italy, though war seemed inevitable. Caesar still showed himself willing to enter into negotiations with the aristocracy 
and accordingly sent Curio with a letter addressed to the Senate, in which he expressed his readiness to resign his command if Pompey would do the same. Curio arrived at Rome on the 1st of January, B.C. 49, the day on which the new consuls, L. Cornelius Lentulus and C. Claudius Marcellus, entered upon their office. It was with great difficulty that the tribunes, M. Antonius, afterward the well-known triumvir, and Cucusius Longinus, forced the Senate to allow the letter to be read. After a violent debate, the motion of Scipio, Pompey's father-in-law, was carried, that Caesar should disband his army by a certain day, and that if he did not do so he should be regarded as an enemy of the state. On the 6th of January the Senate passed the decree investing the consuls with dictatorial power. Antonis and Cassius, considering their lives no longer safe, fled from the city in disguise to Caesar's army, and called upon him to protect the inviolable persons of the tribunes. This was the crisis. The Senate entrusted the management of the war to Pompey, determined that fresh levies of troops should be held, and voted a sum of money from the public treasury to Pompey. Pompey all along had no apprehensions as to the war, he thought it impossible that Caesar should ever march against him. He was convinced that his great fame would cause a multitude of troops to flock around him whenever he wished. In addition to this, he had been deceived as to the disposition of Caesar's troops, he had been led to believe that they were ready to desert their general at the first opportunity. Consequently, when the war broke out, Pompey had scarcely any troops except the two legions which he had obtained from Caesar, and on the fidelity of which he could by no means rely. Footnote 67 Cicero sent to Milo at Massilia the oration which he meant to have delivered, the one which we still have. Milo, after reading it, remarked, I am glad it was not delivered, for I should then have been acquitted, and never have known the delicate flavor of these Massilian mullets. Footnote 68, Caesar's government would expire at the end of B.C. 49, and he had therefore determined to obtain the consulship for B.C. 48, since otherwise he would become a private person. Chapter XXXV. From the beginning of the Second Civil War to Caesar's death. B.C. 49-44. As soon as Caesar learned at Ravenna the last resolution of the Senate, he assembled his soldiers, informed them of the wrongs he had sustained, and called upon them to support him. Finding them quite willing to support him, he crossed the Rubicon, which separated his province from Italy, and occupied Ariminum, where he met with the tribunes. He commenced his enterprise with only one legion consisting of 5,000 foot soldiers and 300 horse, but others had orders to follow him from Transalpine Call, and he was well aware of the importance of expedition, that the enemy might have no time to complete their preparations, though it was the middle of winter, he pushed on with the utmost rapidity, and such was the popularity of his cause in Italy, that city after city opened its gates to him, and his march was like a triumphal progress, Aridium, Pisarum, Phenum, Ancona, and Oximum fell into his hands. These successes caused the utmost consternation at Rome. It was reported that Caesar's cavalry were already at the gates. A general panic seized the Senate, and they fled from the city without even taking with them the money from the public treasury. Caesar continued his victorious march through Pisanum till he came to Corfinium, which M. Domedes Ahinobarbus held with a strong force, but, as Pompey did not march to his assistance, Domitius was unable to maintain the place, and fell himself into Caesar's hands, together with several other senators and distinguished men. Caesar, with the same clemency which he displayed throughout the whole of the civil war, dismissed them all uninjured. He then hastened southward in pursuit of Pompey, 
who had now resolved to abandon Italy. He reached Brundusim before Caesar, but had not sailed when the latter arrived before the town. Caesar straightway laid siege to the place, but Pompey abandoned it on the 17th of March, and embarked for Greece. Caesar was unable to follow him for want of ships. He accordingly marched back from Brundusim, and repaired to Rome, having thus in three months become the master of the whole of Italy. The only opposition which Caesar met with in Rome was from Elmetilus the Tribune, who attempted to prevent him from entering the public treasury, though the people had given him permission to take from it as much money as he pleased. Stand aside, young man, said Caesar, it is easier for me to do than to say. After remaining in the neighborhood of Rome for a short time, he set out for Spain, leaving Amlepidus in charge of the city, and Amantones in command of the troops in Italy. He sent Curio to drive Cato out of Sicily, Cuvleris to take possession of Sardinia, and Antonis to occupy Illyricum. Curio and Vleris obtained possession of Sicily and Sardinia without opposition, and the former then passed over into Africa, which was in possession of the Pompeian party. Here, however, he encountered strong opposition, and at length was defeated, and lost his life in a battle with Juba, king of Mauritania, who supported Piaceus Varus. The Pompeian commander, Siantomis also met with ill success in Illyricum, for his army was defeated, and he himself taken prisoner. These disasters were more than counterbalanced by Caesar's victories in the meantime in Spain. Leaving Rome about the middle of April, he found, on his arrival in Gaul, that Massilia refused to submit to him. He besieged the place forthwith, but, unable to take it immediately, he left C. Trebonis and D. Brutus, with part of his troops to prosecute the siege, and continued his march to Spain. On the approach of Caesar, Elephranes and Empetres, the lieutenants of Pompey in Spain, united their forces, and took up a strong position near the town of Ilerda Lerida, in Catalonia, on the right bank of the Sicori Segre. After experiencing great difficulties at first and some reverses, Caesar at length reduced Ephranes and Petreus to such straits that they were obliged to surrender. They themselves were dismissed and injured. Part of their troops disbanded, and the remainder incorporated among Caesar's troops. The conqueror then proceeded to march against Varro, who commanded two legions in the farther province, but, after the victory over Afranes and Petres, there was no army in Spain capable of offering resistance, and Varro accordingly surrendered to Caesar on his arrival at Cordoba Cordova. Having thus subdued all Spain in forty days, he returned to Gaul. Massilia had not yet yielded but the siege had been prosecuted with so much vigor, that the inhabitants were compelled to surrender the town soon after he appeared before the walls. During his absence in Spain Caesar was appointed dictator by the praetor and Lepidus, who had been empowered to do so by a law passed for the purpose. On his return to Rome Caesar assumed the new dignity, but laid it down again at the end of eleven days, after holding the consular comitia, in which he himself and P. Servilius Vecchia were elected consuls for the next year. But during these eleven days he caused some very important laws to be passed. The first was intended to relieve debtors, but at the same time to protect, to a great extent, the rights of creditors. He next restored all exiles, and, finally, he conferred the full citizenship upon the Transpadani, who had hitherto held only the Latin franchise. After laying down the dictatorship, Caesar went in December to Brundusim, where he had previously ordered his troops to assemble. He had lost many men in the long march from Spain, and also from sickness arising from their passing the autumn in the south of Italy. 
Pompey during the summer had raised a large force in Greece, Egypt, and the East, the scene of his former glory. He had collected an army consisting of nine legions of Roman citizens, and an auxiliary force of cavalry and infantry, and his forces far surpassed in number those which Caesar had assembled at Brundusium. Moreover, Pompey's fleet, under the command of Bibulus, Caesar's colleague in his first consulship, completely commanded the sea. Still Caesar ventured to set sail from Brundusium on the 4th of January, and he arrived the next day in safety on the coast of Epirus. In consequence, however, of the small number of his ships, he was able to carry over only seven legions, which, from the causes previously mentioned, had been so thinned as to amount only to 15.000 foot and 500 horse. After landing this force he sent back his ships to bring over the remainder, but part of the fleet was intercepted in its return by Ambibulus, who kept up such a strict watch along the coast that the rest of Caesar's army was obliged for the present to remain at Brundusium. Caesar was thus in a critical position, in the midst of the enemy's country, and cut off from the rest of his army, but he knew that he could thoroughly rely on his men, and therefore immediately commenced acting on the offensive. After gaining possession of Oricum and Apollonia, he hastened northward, in hopes of surprising Diracim, where all Pompey's stores were deposited, but Pompey, by rapid marshes, reached this town before him, and both armies then encamped opposite to each other, Pompey on the right, and Caesar on the left bank of the river Apsus. Caesar was now greatly in want of reinforcements, and such was his impatience that he attempted to sail across the Adriatic in a small boat. The waves ran so high that the sailors wanted to turn back, till Caesar discovered himself, telling them that they earned Caesar and his fortunes. They then twelled on, but the storm at length compelled them to return, and with difficulty they reached again the coast of Greece. Shortly afterward Amantonis succeeded in bringing over the remainder of the army. Pompey meantime had retired to some high ground near Diracim, and, as he would not venture a battle with Caesar's veterans, Caesar began to blockade him in his position, and to draw lines of circumvallation of an extraordinary extent. They were nearly completed when Pompey forced a passage through them, and drove back Caesar's legions with considerable loss. Caesar thus found himself compelled to a retreat from his present position, and accordingly commenced his march for Thessaly. Pompey's policy of avoiding a general engagement with Caesar's veterans till he could place more reliance upon his own troops was undoubtedly a wise one and had been hitherto crowned with success, but he was prevented from carrying out the prudent plan which he had formed for conducting the campaign. His camp was filled with a multitude of Roman nobles, and acquainted with war, and anxious to return to their estates in Italy and to the luxuries of the capital. His unwillingness to, 